I'm going to just really talk about Chinese overseas investment. And this is a subject that obviously interests a lot of people. And um, I think I'm going to really talk more about the political implications. I'm not going to talk too much about uh, the economic implications, although I guess you can't really extricate them. You can't divide them very easily. And I suppose what I'm going to try and do is explain what Chinese investment is and then what kind of um, impact it might have, the key drivers, and the kind of ways in which it will um, affect um, the world outside of China. Maybe we can also talk a little bit about the way that it will have impact on things within China. Well, basically, we say Chinese overseas direct investment, and it takes many different kinds of forms. And I suppose it always helps before you start talking about something that you know what you're talking about. In fact, when you look at uh, how China operates outside of the borders of the People's Republic, um, you have a kind of pretty complicated entity, although, as I'll describe in the end, it kind of boils down to some pretty simple principles. China operates abroad um, through direct investment. It actually just invests. Um, it does work through joint ventures. It does do mergers and acquisitions, though uh, the success of those, which is, I suppose, true of most mergers and acquisitions, is relatively low. It takes equity stakes. It's got stakes in banks. It's got stakes in automotive companies, in uh, some of the uh, big-name companies um, that have been uh, available to sale, to, for sale recently uh, because of the economic crisis. It's a shareholder in a surprising number of international companies. Um, I think about 100 FTSE companies have shares which are owned by Chinese state entities. Uh, it's not only a national actor, it's also through China's 31 provinces and autonomous regions, it's also um, investing abroad provincially. And some provinces like Yunnan uh, in the southwest, uh, some of the coastal provinces like Zhejiang um, and Fujian, they do have their own separate investment funds. The most difficult area is through informal channels. When we talk about China and Africa, which I'll refer to a little bit later, we only really see the tip of the iceberg. There are many kinds of investments which are happening literally just through people, individuals. They're under the kind of uh, radar. Uh, they're substantial when you put them together, but of course individually they're all pretty small. I guess the thing that is a little bit overwhelming about Chinese investment is it is very, very new. Uh, of course, the People's Republic of China has existed now for 61 years, and Chinese dynasties have existed for a lot, lot, lot longer. But even when China was a major economy, um, some people say before 1820 it was the world's largest economy, uh, despite that, it never really was a deployer of capital abroad. And I suppose we can really say that the uh, real flows of Chinese capital abroad have only started um, in the last 10 years. And in fact, uh, they started for a very, very specific reason. We can still say that 90% of Chinese uh, overseas investment is from the central state. Uh, that means from Beijing-based entities, national entities. And therefore it is, at least according to the official statistics, very much a state-directed um, process. It has increased. If you look at the percentage increases over the last 15 years, they're massive. But that's because it started really from nothing. Um, there are issues about its... Um, political uh, and economic issues about it, and I'll talk about those a little bit later. Um, it's strong in developing countries, less so in developed markets in Europe, and it isn't likely to be a process that goes away. I just want to talk a little bit about 
the history of this process. We can say that before 1978, before the reform and opening up process started, China was pretty much a closed economy. It had a little bit of uh, investment flows through Hong Kong, uh, which was then under British sovereignty. But it was overwhelmingly a state-directed economy. 99% of economic activity was through the central state. Uh, planned economy from 1953, uh, five-year plans which really were prescriptive over almost every area of economic activity, uh, and very limited international exposure. I mean, really, uh, hardly anything. Um, in the 1970s, just at the end of the Cultural Revolution in 1976, I think, uh, there were some uh, investment funds in Hong Kong that started to have activity with uh, mainland Bank of China um, funds, but very, very limited. From 1978 to 1988, of course, 1978 is a very big year. In December of that year, the decision was made really to, uh, under the Deng Xiaoping reforms, to liberalize, at least open up, allow foreign direct investment into China. The first joint venture law was, I think, in 1979, at the end of the year. <coughs> and then, uh, as a sort of corollary of that, uh, one started to see some Chinese investment in largely resources, largely in Australia, some in Canada, very, very limited, very, very small amounts. Uh, from 1989 to 1998, over that decade, it increased a little bit more. That was largely on the back of a renewed process of liberalisation. In 1989, with the huge demonstrations and the Tiananmen Square clampdown, uh, basically there was a pause, a political and an economic pause, while elite leaders in Beijing decided exactly what they were going to do about the uh, economic liberalisation, which by some on the left wing of the Communist Party had been blamed for really leading to the instability and the kind of systemic problems that were behind the Tiananmen Square uprising. Uh, but in 1992, as we now know famously, Deng Xiaoping had his southern tour in which he really gave impetus, further political impetus, to uh, renewed liberalisation. Uh, and this resulted, at least in... Uh, attempts to allow state-owned enterprises to uh, be active abroad, uh, but again overwhelmingly in resources, uh, not so much in manufacturing, sometimes in trying to acquire uh, assets, technology assets and things that the uh, Chinese economists and leaders knew that they needed. A pretty important day, uh, politically and economically, is 2002, largely because well, this was really the uh, first year of the Chinese entry into the World Trade Organization. I think we knew uh, when we worked on that um, 10 years ago, nearly 10 years ago, uh, that it would have a pretty big impact on China's um, internal economy. We didn't really kind of understand how big it would have uh, as an impact on China's overseas activities. Um, and in fact, when this going out policy was announced at the um, 16th Party Congress uh, in that year, uh, these five yearly congresses, which are really the sort of central policy uh, kind of arena for, uh, you know, kind of the party and then the government. Um, I think in the National People's Congress in 2003 sort of, um, uh, you know, kind of legally enfranchised this process. Basically, uh, the policy was to um, encourage uh, key Chinese state companies, largely state companies, to internationalize. Um, and we really see from that uh, a kind of attempt to uh, deepen the internationalization of Chinese state entities but also, of course, um, Chinese non-state entities, which we'll talk a little bit about in a minute. Um, well, if there ever was a central strategy, I suppose uh, there were a number of key drivers, which you can see through the statistics. Um, firstly, 
Well, it has been linked very closely. China as an external actor, an external investor to its energy and resource needs. That was true in the 1980s, and it's become even truer today. China's energy needs are pretty uh, massive. Um, it has uh, extremely uh, kind of you know hungry uh, economic model at the moment. I mean, largely because of energy and energy inefficiency up to a point, but also because of the. Uh, enormously rapid pace at which it's industrialized, really cramming into 10 years the sort of economic activity that uh, some countries, you know, uh, would have taken 100 years to do this, uh, those that have industrialized. And so <clears throat> its need for resources, its need for uh, energy, um, oil, these things has been pretty enormous, uh, and that's been widely covered. And some of these investments really are to back up that uh, need. Uh, another reason for investments overseas has been to uh, support its export markets. Uh, of course, it's now the world's biggest exporter. It overtook uh, Germany last year. But long before that, it was setting up export um, support networks um, in at least developed countries, in developed areas like Europe, in America, North America, and also in some developing countries. Uh, a third reason is gaining uh, brands and technology. This has been uh, one of the most contentious parts of the strategy. Uh, Go Global, when it was announced in 2002 and as it's been sort of institutionalized, has really been sort of to try and get this sort of elusive Chinese branding to um, find ways of uh, introducing Chinese brands. Uh, and part of the strategy has been to piggy bank um, on top of um, brands already uh, acquired, uh, or which already have um, a brand value. I suppose examples of this would be um, the Chinese company Lenovo, which used to be called Legend, uh, and in 2005, I think it was, it made a very high-profile high um, acquisition of IBM um, ThinkPad. Um, this has been one of the more successful ones. There have been attempts by Chinese companies to acquire other brands, um, which have been less successful or even at some point stopped. And we can talk about that in a minute. And finally, uh, the more kind of elusive, the more difficult idea is really to assist with internationalizing Chinese corporates. WTO has in many ways opened up the Chinese market, Chinese internal market, and there's this sort of anxiety on the part of policymakers that uh, they need to have more internationalized experience. Something like 75,000 new internationally experienced managers were needed in 2007, and China um, calculated it only had about 10,000 suitably qualified people. So there's all sorts of areas where you can see a need for a very, very rapid international exposure of an economy which until relatively recently uh, was uh, pretty protected. When we look at actually who are the people investing um, beyond the sort of very generic uh, kind of things I talked about a little bit earlier, well, it becomes very, very complicated. One of them is the China Investment Corporation, which is about 200 um, billion US dollars, uh, which was established in 2008. Uh, 2007, maybe the late 2007 in September, uh, and this has really been one of the most um, controversial um, entities, largely because it's a sovereign wealth fund, basically. Um, its money comes from a, a range of sources, and at the moment is divested into already extant um, uh, internal um, investment uh, kind of entities, but also uh, it has taken limited uh, amounts of um, foreign uh, exposure. Mm, but recently it's been quite quiet. Uh, it 
became quite a controversial um, entity when there was a lot of argument about the role of sovereign wealth funds and the uh, ways in which they were acquiring assets um, with what some claimed was unfair um, state support. Um, this was in 2008 and 2009. And so the CIC um, has been probably much less active than we expected. The second, the State Administration for Foreign Exchange. Well, this is the uh, guardian of the uh, two point, I think it's now six trillion US dollars of foreign exchange. Um, I mean, the renminbi is a protected currency, um, not convertible, at least very limited conversions, although some exist through Hong Kong and uh, you know, other very, very limited uh, kind of areas now. So, so SAFE is, <laughs> you know, really uh, a politically directed uh, kind of mm, fund, I suppose you'd call it a fund, but, but it has taken um, some shareholdings um, in foreign uh, listed companies, uh, about 100, I think, um, at least in London. Um, it's been active in other areas of investment. It's uh, quite a mysterious organization. Um, and in fact, one of its uh, directors sits on the board of the China Investment Corporation, so there is a very, very close link. There's all sorts of controversy uh, about how it is that China now holds something like a trillion dollars of US Treasury bonds. That's under SAFE. There's all sorts of controversy about how SAFE is trying to diversify its foreign um, treasury holdings. And really, in the end, uh, as some economists have commented, what's the use of having so much debt? Uh, so there's a lot of kind of issues around SAFE. It's not uh, really a particularly orthodox actor, but it's uh, obviously extremely important. There's a National Social Security Fund, which is about 75 billion US dollars. It has some limited um, investments, largely in resources. And then we come down to state-owned enterprises, um, oil companies, the main state oil companies, um, other um, state-owned uh, companies that have been active, uh, the most famous um, is Chalco China Aluminium Corporation, which uh, nearly did a deal with Rio Tinto. I think it still holds um, about 9% of Rio Tinto, but was trying to um, increase that, uh, and that went quite sour. And then finally, non-state-owned enterprises. So we could say that a company like Huawei, which is the biggest investor um, from China in the UK, in Basingstoke, um, a telecoms company, is a non-state actor, although um, maybe uh, it's not as non-state as uh, we think, I mean, it's got, I think, 20% formally of its shares in state hands, but there's all sorts of um, suspicions that it is probably more state-directed than we may wish to think. When you come to who supplies the policy framework uh, over uh, outward investment, it's, again, equally complicated. So on the one hand, you have the actors that I just talked about in terms of who's actually doing the investment, but then you have the policy actors the Ministry of Commerce um, is one of the most important. It used to be called the Ministry of Foreign Trade and Economic Cooperation. And of course, its minister, Cheng Ming, sits on the Politburo. Um, uh, there's also uh, provincial levels of Ministry of Commerce, actually. I think they used to be called Departments of Foreign Trade and Economic Cooperation. And now, uh, at ministry level, I think they have uh, sort of ministerial, uh, uh, they have provincial um, equivalents. Uh, and so we have a centralized Ministry of Commerce. We also have um, provincial versions, provincial actors, and they can be of varying importance. Uh, a province like Guangdong obviously has, I think, something, it used to be something like 30% of Chinese productivity, so enormously powerful. Uh, and I think someone recently did a list of Chinese provinces which proved that something like 12 of them were in the world's top 30 economies or something. I mean, absolutely extraordinary explosion. 
Um, and so provinces can be pretty important, uh, and some of them can be very powerful uh, in having input. Uh, recently, uh, about three years ago, um, the central government relaxed its um, prescriptions on how and how much Chinese provinces, the 31 provinces and autonomous regions, could invest abroad, and so there is a lot more freedom. But on the whole, uh, anything above 10 million US dollars, which isn't a huge amount when you think um, of the kinds of massive investments that have been investment flows that have made, um, has to be uh, authorised by the central uh, government ministries. Along with the Ministry of Commerce is the Ministry of Finance, uh, again, a major actor, um, certainly about fiscal policy. There's the State Council, which is the Chinese uh, cabinet, the Chinese government. Basically, you have the Communist Party and all its structures. You have then the State Council with its ministries and its ministers and its bureaucrats and also its leading groups. You have the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China that sets the overall policy every uh, year, basically. Um, it has plenums. One was held last October in which they discussed the five-year plan, and that will, uh, the 18th, um, not the 18th, the, um, the 12th, a five-year plan will be implemented um, basically from this March when the National People's Congress meet. And, of course, there will be language in that about um, policy support for overseas investment. You have central banks, China Development Bank, which I think was uh, recently uh, judged to be one of the biggest investors in Europe, Bank of China, um, uh, Industry and Agricultural Bank. I, I mean, a lot of very, very um, big banks in terms of capitalization, the little that they capitalized so far there or global leaders, but it's pretty difficult to work out just how um, liquid they are, how um, their balance sheets are, uh, you know, kind of uh, how clean they are because um, of this lack of transparency. That's one of the um, problems, really, with the central banking system. Um, and so, so these actors are all pretty important in putting policy together. And I think the one thing you can say, really, is um, at the moment there isn't a central um, authoritative entity that pulls together all of the policy on Chinese overseas investment. It's, it's not centralised. Um, it, it's not harmonised, if we can use this popular word. Well, uh, where does this investment go? Um, actually, if you look at the data, um, this is from 2009, 2010 isn't um, available yet, and most of it's from the Chinese um, national um, data, uh, na national sort of statistics bureau. So you know, there are caveats about that, but it's, it's the best we have. Um, over 45% in 2008 of China's cumulative uh, overseas direct investment went to Hong Kong. Uh, so, you know, an enormous amount uh, goes still to um, the special administrative region. I mean, it's formerly part of China, but has a great deal of autonomy, um, certainly in economic issues. Um, Latin America, again, if you look, it's a big amount, uh, but most of that is um, through the Cayman Islands or British Virgin Islands through um, indirect um, investment vehicles. When you look, in fact, at Europe and Africa and the Middle East, it's a slightly different story for each of those. For Europe, um, and Chinese statistics, in fact, include Russia as part of Europe, rather interestingly. I wonder if we could introduce that concept for NATO. But basically, um, most of the European investment is in Russia, uh, according to the way that the Bureau, the Statistics Bureau in Beijing, judges this, and surprisingly small amounts in developed uh, markets in Europe. I mean, um, Britain at the moment is the largest um, destination for Chinese investment. That happened in 2009. Uh, Germany is another favoured country. But when you compare it to the amounts that go um, from Japan or from the United States, 
uh, it's still reasonably small. Uh, in fact, it's minuscule. It's pretty, pretty small. Um, I think Japan has something like 100 billion US dollars invested in the UK. I doubt whether Chinese investment here reaches a billion um, dollars at the moment. I think it's probably not even more than 200 uh, million um, sterling. So, you know, it's, uh, it's still a very small amount, but that's a direct investment. Um, everyone's very excited about Africa and Chinese involvement in Africa. There are whole conferences on this, books about it, all sorts of lectures about it. But in fact, uh, although the increase has been pretty significant um, from a very small base, um, it's still only a, just a little more than actually comes to Europe. Um, Africa has seen one of the Chinese biggest um, investments, single investments um, outside of Asia in Standard Bank in, in South Africa in um, 2008. Uh, I mean, it's seen some very big, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, um, energy investments, resource investments. Some of those have attracted a lot of attention, a lot of press attention. Uh, but if you add them all up, again, it's not a huge amount. And the Middle East, again, uh, mostly directed um, towards resources. Um, Iran uh, got a lot of investment from China for the development of some of its gas and oil fields. Uh, very significant uh, because of the political situation and also because of the fact that uh, of China's imported oil, something like 60% comes from the Middle East. So strategically, it's very, very important um, for China's energy needs. Uh, and yet again, uh, these are not massive amounts. So I suppose when you look at the actual uh, markets that China is operating in, um, Asia is still by way and afar, um, and Hong Kong is still by way and afar the most important. And you can say that you don't really get a full picture because a lot of the Hong Kong and Cayman Islands investment, well, we don't really know where it ends up. I mean, it's, you know, indirect investment, pretty difficult. Uh, we've tried to make lists of uh, particular high-profile investments and tried to follow the money, as it were, um, but it's very, very difficult uh, because of the way that structure, companies are structured and also the way that information is given we have to sort of draw some conclusions. The uh, Chinese investment um, does excite people. I mean, it's, it's a new big trend. Rather like Chinese uh, consumers, it's something that we hope to see growing. And when um, Chinese politicians, as the current Vice Premier Li Keqiang did, when he came to Europe here last um, November, no, early January, sorry, um, you know, there's a lot of excitement about whether China is going to um, invest heavily. Um, and it's regarded as being something uh, which delivers two things. One is it does something about the imbalances, the trade imbalances. It means that after so much investment into China, um, now we can see a kind of return. We can see Chinese investment coming and creating jobs um, outside. Uh, but also, I think it's uh, behind the um, kind of you know the, the, the strategy. It's really um, you know an idea of how this is going to help China internationalize more um, and make it. Uh, you know, a more sort of embedded part of the global economy. But I think, um, you know, if we look at um, how China acts at the moment, um, we have to be very, very aware of the fact that the state, the central state, uh, with its particular characteristics, is still really important. Um, and the political direction, the kind of um, priorities it has, you know, these are really sacrosanct. Um, and therefore, when we look at you know, the state councillors, the sort of representative of the government and the ministries. On the other hand, we have to remember that, you know, uh, at the end of the day, uh, the Communist Party itself has a pretty big say in a huge amount of this outward investment. And I suppose an awareness of that uh, is what lies behind some of the resistance to taking too much Chinese investment. Uh, this has been a bigger problem in America than Europe. 
because of the sensitivity about major assets falling into uh, foreign ownership. Uh, rather ironically, America um, should be uh, a big supporter of liberal open markets, and yet um, it is very, very sensitive about the ownership of uh, its own assets. And so very famously, um, Unicor, a relatively small energy company, I think it was you know, going to be sold for about 16 billion US dollars in 2005, um, created enormous controversy uh, when uh, a state company, the China um, National uh, Overseas Oil Corporation, uh, wanted to actually buy it. Uh, this was one of the biggest stories, um, certainly in America in 2005, created enormous problems. Uh, and without even actually making a formal bid, um, CNOOC eventually pulled out. Um, said it wasn't interested largely because of the political opposition um, from Congress, um, from the Congressional Investment Panel, I think it's called, and from um, the press, uh, and basically from um, politicians. We can see this a little bit in Europe. It's not um, quite the same, but it's an interesting question to ask. Well, on the one hand, we say we want Chinese investment, and we need Chinese investment, um, and of course there's a lot, in theory, of money that the Chinese could invest. But on the other hand, there's resistance to companies like Huawei getting big telecoms um, contracts. Uh, I think in um, early 2010, there was a story in the Sunday Times about how Huawei had basically been blocked from getting further big British telecom um, contracts because of this um, you know, resistance to a supposedly uh, state-influenced company, even if not state-owned company in a very sensitive sector, um, being um, active um, in Europe. <coughs> And I suppose when we talk about the um, political and economic risks, well, um, we have to factor in this kind of resistance. We have to um, recognize it, even though uh, maybe it isn't that rational. Uh, if it is rational, then we have to deal with it even more um, aggressively. We also have to um, think of the economic risks largely because Chinese investors themselves have admitted that they have found it very, very tough. In surveys, on the one hand, they say they want to um, invest more in Europe in developed markets, they don't like the political risk um, in less developed markets. But on the other hand, they say that it is very, very difficult. Um, a famous case was um, Thomson's, the um, French TV manufacturer, which was purchased by um, TCL, uh, a Shenzhen-based company in, I think, 2006, 2007. Uh, Shenzhen is, um, uh, TCL is a very innovative, dynamic company, very international. Um, something like 70% of its business now is abroad. Um, and yet it found this investment very, very tough. Uh, it found it tough for two reasons. One was because of local regulations, um, the extraordinary problems of understanding union law, the extraordinary problems of understanding tax law, of understanding uh, basic sort of business um, you know, kind of principles in Europe. Uh, they're tough even if you're from a, a sort of, you know, from one country in, you, in the EU and you go to another. It's pretty difficult. Um, for a Chinese company, that was very, very tough. And I think the second is, again, uh, because of this lack of awareness of the market, uh, TCL complained that in the end they had bought um, technology which was too old, that wasn't usable, and they were um, kind of fairly, mm, not pessimistic, but I think a little bit disappointed at what had been delivered. So uh, I think we can still see at the moment that Chinese overseas investment is stronger in developing countries. Um, and that there's still a great deal of hesitancy in developed markets. So two years ago, I think there was a lot of excitement, um, an idea that with the economic crisis, Chinese companies would become much more present um, internationally. And in fact, uh, 
that didn't happen. That didn't happen. Um, it's still a relatively small amount. So when um, a Chinese uh, company bought um, Volvo uh, for 1.6 billion, I think, um, last year, well, this was the biggest single investment in Europe up till then. Um, and, you know, by, by Geely, I think the company, the uh, uh, Chinese company is called Geely. Um, but, you know, that's still a relatively small amount and really for um, a relatively uh, minor brand. Um, and so sort of the sense that the big moment which we were expecting never quite came. Uh, and also on the back of that, uh, a lot of um, worry, um, uh, even during the economic crisis, by uh, people like the head of the China Investment Corporation and others, that they would be seen as being opportunistic. I mean, why wouldn't they want to be opportunistic? But this was an issue of the perception that they would be seen <coughs> negatively and that people would try and lock them out. But as I say, uh, finally, this isn't something that is going to go away. Um, the need for Chinese corporates, state-owned and non-state, to internationalize is still there. Um, the desire uh, for Chinese entrepreneurs um, to uh, be active as international business people is still um, very strong. And so uh, it's not something we can just see um, stopping. Um, I think, therefore, uh, that in the next uh, five years, you will probably uh, see a lot more Chinese corporates coming abroad. Um, it's still unclear whether, like the Japanese corporates um, in the past, when they internationalized in the um, 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, whether the Chinese will come with their own brands or whether they will continue to want to buy other brands. Um, and it's still not entirely clear what the strategy is uh, for developed markets like um, Europe um, and uh, America particularly to engage in this process in a way which will not become confrontational. A lot of it also hangs upon um, the ways in which economic um, productivity and economic development are going to be delivered in China, which is uh, back to the five-year plan, which will be delivered, um, which will be start to be implemented from, from March when one assumes it will be passed at the National um, People's Congress. Um, and so <clears throat> I think, uh, I didn't do this slide, but anyway, uh, uh, here's an advert for Credit Suisse, and uh, thank them for sponsoring today. Um, maybe uh, in the future there will be a Chinese brand uh, sponsoring these sorts of events, and maybe I can continue then to talk openly and freely about uh, the Communist Party of China's um, geopolitical and strategic hopes. Thank you.